Hello and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today, we're speaking with several of the Post team from Jungle Cruise, including film editor Joel Negron, ACE, music editor Jeanette Serga, and the team of Ethan Vanderrein and Eric Adal, who were the sound designers and supervising sound editors. Jeanette's previous work has included Aquaman, Transformers The Last Night, The Shadows, The Huntsman Winter War, Avengers Age of Ultron, and Iron Man 3. Ethan and Eric have worked on Space Jam 2, Godzilla vs. Kong, and other Godzilla movies, A Quiet Place 1 and 2, Six Underground, multiple Transformers movies, World War Z, Tree of Life, and, well, close to a hundred other titles. Joel Negron has worked on films including Thor Ragnarok, The Shallows, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 21 Jump Street, Transformers, Dark of the Moon, and Revenge of the Fallen, the 2010 reboot of The Karate Kid, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, and he was an assistant editor for a trio of editorial greats on True Lies. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. My first question is for Joel, just about fight and action sequences, and also for sound. How much do sound effects help sell some of those things? There's a great fight that's kind of in the trailers that people know about. When you're cutting that, very little of that audio is actually there, recorded as production sound, right? That's correct. This is Joel speaking. Yeah, and, and sound is, is huge. It helps tell the story. When you're building an action sequence and when you're putting this, this scene together and you're finding the right bits and pieces and finding the, the best action bits, you always start with temporary sound. We have libraries in our Avid that are temporary. And what we do before we start the show is we get our library from Ethan and Eric so that the sound effects that we're using are are sounds that are in their realm, you know, because we hire Ethan and Eric because of their fantastic sound design ability. So we talked about the movie, we're having this fight in the jungle and I need um, natives running, I need spears, you know, hitting trees, I need different things like that. And I use that while I'm cutting. And that's super helpful, super, super helpful while we're cutting the picture. And I, I, I hardly ever cut action sequences silent. I mean, I look at them silent to make sure that they make sense, but then as I build them and as I'm creating the storyline, I'm, I'm constantly adding sound effects and, and music too. Tem we use temporary music from different movies that uh, Jeanette puts in. It's just part of the process. That's one of those things is if you cut with sounds that you pull from some random sound effect library, people get temp love with that stuff, right? <laughs> And usually it's not very good. And you can tell it's not very good. And, you know, just over the years, Jeanette and Ethan and Eric and I have done how many movies together, guys? I mean, you know, a bunch. A lot yeah. of so they know my sensibilities. I know their sensibilities. And we're very collaborative that way. Ethan and Eric, what kind of advantages that he's using your sounds to begin with when you finally get into the mix and the stuff you have to be doing? Most of the movies that we work on, we tend to deliver some kind of toolkit early on, just because as Joel described, it just helps in the development of the film to start in the right sound universe in terms of where it's going to end up. The way we like to work is try and get our 
sound in as early as possible and have the sound really develop parallel to the picture so that it becomes a sort of co-evolution in a way. And the sound is sort of always reacting to the picture and then eventually vice versa as well. And as we start to develop our tracks in more depth, we're constantly updating Joel and feeding him mix downs of our tracks, various scenes, and those go into the Avid. And the track really starts to develop organically with the picture. And so hopefully by the time we get to the pre-mixing, really everything that's in the Avid is in our tracks and vice versa. And so it's really becomes one thing at that point. And we don't have to deal with the whole temp love issue that you mentioned. You did mention temp love. And if we are using subpar sound effects or sound effects from a not so good library, that's just kind of there because it's all we have. Sometimes people fall in love with that. And then later on in the process, you're, you wish you could put in better designy sound. And when you're, when you're working on a movie, you're constantly convincing people or showing people sequences and you're constantly showing them bits and pieces of the movie, but you're all, you're selling it. You know, you're also selling it. Like I'll do a, an action fight sequence and then I'll, I'll show it to the director and he's the first guy I'm selling it to. And then when he sees it, he, he likes it or he changes it around a little bit. And then it goes on to the next person, the producer or, or writers or the studio. If we're putting in a sound that's not right or not not what it should be, then they hear it and they kind of like it. And then in your mind, you're like, oh no, that, that could have been better. That could have been so much better. So to start the process off with your sound designer giving you a, a toolkit, it just makes the whole process so much better from the beginning all the way until you're finishing and uh, final mixing. Did you have discussions about what you could possibly temp with? Well, Joel will contact me and he'll go over in detail what the actual scene or genre or what we're looking for. And he's pretty precise on what he's looking for. And I'll send him a bunch of stuff. And he'll even collaborate with me as far as like, well, we like this kind of feel to it. And I'll come up with options to send him. It's great for me to start in the middle of shooting. And then if he starts giving me scenes that actually happen in the middle of the movie, we try to go back and forth and try to find the emotional content, the tone of the movie, which is always difficult. Working with Joel, he's always got such a big picture kind of look at and storytelling as how this movie will end up with his dialogue and we go back and forth and just finding the right emotional content. A lot of times the music editor is almost a member of the scoring team. It sounds like you're more a member of Joel's team than the composer. Well, a lot of times I come on before the composer does. Whether I know who's the composer or not, we still have to come up with some sort of tone that these scenes are, you know, we're getting an idea of what it's going to be and that you can show them once it's assembled. Does it help you once you know who the composer is? Do you start thinking differently? Definitely. But a lot of composers, too, don't like their music to be tempted in um, so much. If I can collaborate with the composer early, that's just a benefit. I wanted to talk about intercutting, Joel. There's a couple of places where intercutting happens. At the beginning, there's intercutting between the villain's story and the hero's story. Was that 
as scripted or was that something you needed to find your way through? A little bit of it is in the script. One of the directions Jama gave me when we first started was he wanted to do a lot of intercutting. The Emily Blunt character is arriving at the port town the same time that the Dwayne Johnson character is arriving there and they're kind of uh, coming together. And what happens usually in editing and it happens a lot is you end up overdoing it and you see it and you're, you know, you start thinking, well, you know, it's uh, it's a little bit too much intercutting because, you know, you're getting confused. It's all about the story. As, as long as the story is being told in a, a linear fashion, you can intercut as much as you want and as, as, as many times as you want. But what we did, even in the action sequences, is we, we overdid it and then we brought it back and then we just kept fine tuning it and fine tuning it until it was working the best it could. And that was a super long process because you start out overdoing it and then maybe you go away from it for a little while and then you look at it again. And you're like, ah, oh, you know, I think we got too much. If it's uh, one of the battle scenes or whatever, there's too much of the bad guy in there. Let's take some of him out. Let's just stay with our main characters for a little while. And it, it's just a matter of balance. I guess that's the best way to say it. It's, it's a matter of just balancing whose story you want to be with and where you want to go next. If you're invested in the main characters during action sequences, you want to intercut to see what the bad guys are doing every once in a while, but you kind of want to just see what your guy, th th that's who you want to be with. Like I said, it's just a balancing act. And, and that's what I do. I just, I'm constantly trying everything, constantly trying different angles, trying different cuts, trying different cutting styles, just to try and to make the sequence or the scene the most entertaining it can be. I, I want to draw people into it. I want people to watch it and want to see what's going to happen next. And I want people to follow the characters that I want them to follow, you know? So, and, and in this case, it was the Emily Blunt character and the Dwayne Johnson character. What's the choice of the exact moment you cut from one story to another? Well, it's pretty much emotion. You know, when you're watching it, you emotionally feel like I've set this story point and I've showed the audience this story point. Now I'm ready to move on to the next story point. And if the next story point is the same characters, then I wouldn't intercut. But let's say it's kind of like a period on a sentence, for example. Then you want to see what the, the villain's doing or what the other character's doing. It's more of an emotional thing than anything. You know, when you're intercutting, you're, you're watching something and you're following the story. And emotionally, if it feels right to go to somebody else, you will. But if not, you just stay with the same character and stay with the same storyline that you're in. The pacing and rhythm of the banter between Frank and Lily, obviously these are two smart people and pacing the dialogue is one of those ways that you can help make people look smart. Was that a rhythm that you felt like the actors had built or did you have to amplify that? They were actually pretty good together, Emily and Dwayne. First of all, they really like each other. They're like best friends. So there's some scenes where they were just right on. The banter was perfect. And we had, everything was shot with double, you know, two cameras, three cameras. So in those cases, you just you know, go camera A, camera B and it just works great and then in other cases you trim it and you shorten it you take lines out here and there but luckily they were amazing both of them were really really good emily is it was such a pleasure to cut her dailies she's such a good actress and Dwayne is he's great he's always great the other character jack whitehall he's a comedian and his comedic timing worked out really well too in that instance, it made it easier to banter back and forth and to cut the scenes in, in a way that that's paced up properly and entertainingly. Not every scene was executed perfectly by the actors, so sometimes we had to trim it up, and, you know, make it uh, make it pacey. Tell me a little bit about trying to structure the film so that you feel like we haven't waited too long, but we haven't 
lost too much setup? Oh yeah, that was a challenge because we had tons of setup, but which is good. I, you know, when people, you know, JAMA shoots a lot of film and I don't find a, a director shooting a lot of film cumbersome. I like when a director shoots a lot of film because then we get a lot of choices and then we can go wherever we want to go. And he had a lot of setup in the opening for, with the conquistadors. And then he had a lot of setup with Lily and the Jack Whitehall character in, in London. Then we had to go to the setup of meeting Frank. There was like three areas that we had to get through before Lily met Frank. That's when the movie starts. So the challenge was to make those three chunks as entertaining and quick as possible. You know, there was a lot of choices, a lot of choices. There were different ways to open them. We had to set up the enchanted tree. We had to set up what everybody was searching for. And also we had to set up the characters. We had to set up the period. It was 1916. There was a lot of, a lot of stuff to do before the two met. And it was just a matter of finding out what the least amount of story we can get away with for each chunk. It was challenging and we just kind of worked it and worked it what it's like. It's ever play pinball on a pinball machine. If you don't shake the machine, you know, the ball just rolls down and goes into the hole. You got to shake the machine. You got to make it work, you know, to get the thing to move where you want to do. And that's what it feels like. You know, you take the material and you're just kind of shaking it and moving it around and just trying to find the best way to get from point A to point B, especially in an opening like that, that has, you know, has all that set up. Lily shoots her eight millimeter, 16 millimeter camera. Was there creative thoughts about, let's do a projector sound, a hand crank sound, the regular sound? Did you experiment with that? I believe this was Jama's idea. And certainly it was tempted that way in Joel's track, but there is a little hand crank sound that's going over those black and white internal <laughs> camera images. And for me, it's super fun to be able to pop back and forth between that very minimalist little cranking sound and then sort of the lush backgrounds of the Amazon. And that's my favorite process of working on this film was has such an epic scope. And Disney gave us such resources to not take shortcuts where we actually built a Jungle Cruise library from scratch, which involved going out and doing several jungle recording expeditions. One of them, we sent somebody out to the Amazon rainforest in Brazil for a few days to record in surround sound. Our incredible best post-production supervisor ever got me funding to, to Petra Holdorf Stratton to fly down for a week to this remote rainforest in Costa Rica, which has kind of the most pristine wildlife and hundreds of species of exotic birds that only exist in the Amazon and that region of Costa Rica. All those atmospheres that you hear are created uniquely for jungle crews. We use some several different types of recorders. You know, one of them is what's called an ambisonic microphone, which records 7.1 multi-channel in super high quality, 192 kilohertz, 24 bit. And then we also had parabolic microphone um, to capture toucans in the trees or howler monkeys in a really kind of clean, laser-focused way. And then we use that for a bunch of different things, like recording the steam engines, which were original turn-of-the-century vintage steam engines that we created. Laquila, Frank's boat, 
with. We also use for Frank's boat, some of the steam releases are actually from the Disneyland Railroad, the original engines at, at Disneyland. Of course, Proxima character, she's a Jaguar, and she was built out of a whole collection of big cat recordings that we've done from leopards to pumas. And when she gets more aggressive, we ventured into a little bit of tiger in her too. For baby, Proxima, uh, my cat Lola uh, made an appearance as well. <laughs> That's great. I love that. While we're kind of on the idea of sound, talk to me about some of the fantastical sounds. The conquistadors have an otherworldly element to, to them. And they each have kind of their own different theme. They've basically been cursed. So it's kind of like the jungle has taken their bodies over. And so one conquistador has a mud and frog kind of flavor. For that character, it's actually very quite literal. We're using like actual glopping mud and little frogs. Also, were some frogs we recorded in Costa Rica, poison dart frogs. Another conquistador is based on beehives, so there's sort of honeycombs dripping, got the sticky sounds we, we recorded, and then beehives, which um, we have also recorded, not specifically for this movie. And he's a fun one because the bees kind of turn into the little characters of their own, too, in, in their interactions. And then, of course, we have snake conquistador. Snakes don't make great sounds, so that's something we kind or of consider. <laughs> they don't really make any sound. Vipers will do kind of hisses, but they're not really great on film. So those we construct, and we created those snake sounds out of pressurized air releases, and then we add a tremolo to them, so it creates a kind of sound. And a tree guy. And then we have our tree guy, exactly. He's got sort of these vines and branches that grow out of him. For that, it's kind of a combination of wood stress, which creates can create really nice, deep sounds for him and convey a sense of power. For some of those sounds, we use types of pressure board and plywood in a hydraulic press. And then we can slowly kind of compress that and then take each of the chunky cracks and then edit them very closely to each other. And then we can do pitch ramps with them or Dopplers with them to give a sense of movement. The great Walter Murch, both picture editor and sound designer, always kind of describe this idea of if you just have a steady sound, it's just a killer for scenes. It's just death. It always needs some type of movement, whether tempo movement, dynamics, changes of pitch. To me, part of the fun of sound design is how abstract it is in that way. You know, you can take a totally different sound and apply it to something completely unrelated that's on screen, but it works. And it's sort of an abstract art in that way. There's this alchemy between sound and picture and it's so malleable and it's like sculpture. You can really make a lot of just bizarre things work. Any funny little uh, thing that we can listen for? Almost like your cat example. One fun little thing that comes to mind is, this maybe is a silly example, but during Frank's first Jungle Cruise tour, some uh, poison darts get blown at the ship. And the sound of the darts traveling through the air was my old studio ID, which uh, had a frayed plastic edge to it. So it had a little string to it. And when I'd whip that around, just walking through the hall, I'd whip it around and it had this great slicing sound. And it sounded really, you know, like a ninja star or a poison dart. Um, that's one little <laughs> serendipitous uh, sound in there. One thing about the reason why we've done so many movies together with Ethan and Eric is they are the masters at knowing which sound to hear at which time. When we're in a, a dub stage and when, they're, when we're doing our, our temp dubs and when we're doing our finals, 
they're really good at knowing which is the sound. Even though there's a jungle with all this birds and trees and wind and everything, they can say, this is what needs to be heard at this point. And it's all about story. This sound is going to tell the story the best here. We've done the Transformers movies together and we've done other movies and you don't get like explosions and metal clashing. You just get the sounds that you need to hear. And that's what's really impressive about the work they do. How are you monitoring sound in your edit suite? That's a good question because I'm working on a show now where I'm just stereo. You do want to have a great presentation while you're working and you want the people that are with you to have the best experience possible. But when I'm in a cutting room and I'm cutting picture, sound is obviously part of it, but I think it's better to just kind of have your minimal while you're cutting, make it pleasant for the people that are with you in the room and leave the big elaborate surround sound 5.1, leave that to the dub stage for later because your room is a little tiny room. It's not a theater. And, and you, can, you can sit there and spend hours and hours and hours. I don't know how you work, but you can spend hours making the sound and music perfect, but then you're kind of neglecting your job, which is the picture and the, and the story. And the good thing about LCR, you know, I have a Mackie mixer. And if I'm running a scene and the director hates the music, I just I have the pots. I just dial it down so he doesn't have to hear that music anymore. Or if some sound effects are bothering him, I just lower it. So that with stereo, you can't really do that because you, you're not running through the Mackie mixer. It just goes out to two speakers. Boy, that's a great tip. I love that. With temp score, can you describe some of the things that you brought in as a toolkit? We went into... Avatar, a lot of uh, like Peter Pan. Then we went into Apollo 13. From what I understood, it was going to be a big score, just a big orchestral score. Like Joel said, it was in 1916 and you wanted a nice traditional orchestral score. So we picked the palette from that. And did you get anything from the composer itself further on down the line before he started delivering finals? Further down the line, yes, we started getting James's demos, which are fantastic. It gives you a really great idea where he would like to take the score and the themes. This is the direction that we're going to go. He writes to picture um, every, every scene, and then he'll have his music editors, Jim Weidman and David Olson, to deliver to the cutting room. And then we start looking at and listening to what it's going to be. It starts coming alive then. James wanted to start getting things ready for the orchestra and start prepping. And um, at this point, there were some cues in the movie, but not all of them. It was like half temp, half James Newton Howard. So he decided like, okay, we need to see all the music and get this, you know, start preparing for orchestra. So executives, director, Joel, Jama Joel, all of us were there. And James hit the space bar and we actually watched the movie with his music and didn't stop. We watched the entire movie beginning to end and the lights came up and everybody was like, this is a movie. <laughs> No more temp score. <laughs> it was his themes, the bad guys, the good guys, the you know thematic moments, and it was um, it was it was definitely a moment, you know. And the other moment was when we actually heard the themes playing with a live orchestra on the scoring stage. That was a moment. It was really a lot of. Fun. I mean, what's amazing when you go to those scoring sessions is I, I'm sure you've seen this is 
they've got a hundred piece orchestra and they, they put the music in front of them. First time they've ever seen the music. And James says, okay, let's do a rehearsal. And it's like this amazing score. And it's, you know, the, the musicians are so good and so talented and it's incredible how that works. And then sometimes you're in the booth listening and sometimes you're in the room listening. And it's just really, it's really a lot of fun. Is there any actual value to be there? Absolutely. Especially when we get to the dubbing stage. I personally, being one of the music editors, knowing what it sounds like there and knowing what it sounds like in the mix down and knowing how it's supposed to sound in the dubbing stage, it's very valuable for me to be there. And you also hear all the conversations, you hear the takes that they like better, you're aware of maybe there's an alternate cue and you can kind of see how the director's reacting to the alternate cue while, while it's being recorded, you know, things like that. So it is, there is a value to it. I mean, for me as a picture editor, there's not a lot for me to do, but still it's, there is some value to being there. Beyond just being a great editor, what's that skill set of cutting a big film? It's all about not thinking of it as a big film, thinking of it as little pieces and scenes. The scenes are just little pieces and eventually it gets bigger and bigger and goes together. And then when you get a scene, it could be a bunch of blue screen. It could be a guy in a suit walking around and it could be, you know, with actors acting to, to nothing, you know, especially on these big movies, you get that a lot. You get in, you have to use your imagination. You have to imagine in your head where that mud guy is going to be standing or where the animal that maybe an animated animal where is he going to be emily is amazing she'll look at nothing and it's supposed to be you know the mud guy or a jaguar or something you believe that she's really seeing that there's a sequence a rapid sequence you know where the aquila's and these heavy rapids and they're in danger and she's in a little tiny pool in atlanta that you really feel like she's on those rapids. And what I do is I have to see what she's doing or what Dwayne's doing or what Jack Whitehall's doing. And I kind of imagine the environment around them or the monster that's coming to chase them. I start with that in my mind and then I put it together. And then sometimes we'll put cardboard cutouts, so to speak, or just still frames of whatever's in the shot moving around. And then we'll add on top of that previs, which is from the the visual effects company, they'll, they'll do previs. So then you can comp together rudimentary animated figure of whatever's in the scene. The next step is previs people will comp together something. So then it gets a little bit better. And they're all in different stages. Sometimes it's just storyboards. Sometimes it's animation, like just super rough animation. And then as the movie progresses, the pieces get better and better and better. And you have a scene that looks pretty decent. Then you add the other scenes to it. And then you add the other scenes to it. So to answer your question, I know they're all big movies or they, they seem like there's a lot going on, but it's all done just in little tiny pieces and eventually you get the big picture. Were there structural changes in the film at all? There was a third act that was not really working. So we went back and we shot in Atlanta again for three weeks and pretty much reshot the entire third act. The movie was, you know, it was good. It was every, every screen we've ever had, people have loved it. I mean, from the very first director's cut until our last cut, people have always liked it. One of the things that Sean always would say is we need to plus it we need to plus it that's what we were doing we're just constantly just trying to make it better trying to make it better so there's a little bit of restructuring came before we went in and, and reshot the third act you know it's, it's a jungle cruise so they're on a journey so you can't really move it around too much and switch it around too much one of the things that really helped us the structure of the whole movie and, and just knowing where the characters are and this came later this came in post it was it was i think it was jama's idea i'm pretty sure it was is to put a map in there and one of the things that the map does is it 
shows you how far they've traveled, you know, because you're, you're with them and they're on the boat, but then you come to the next location and you don't know if they've gone a hundred yards or a hundred miles. So we have this technique of cutting to this map, you know, making it visually pleasant, cutting to it. And then you see the boat moving around and then it turns into the real boat into a different location. And the other thing is we put location cards. You'll see like titles of the different locations of the items that were on the map. And that helped us structurally put together the progression of the of where they were in the story. How are you approaching a big tentpole moment to try to start editing it? I get the footage in. There's a tree village fight, you know, which is enormous, you know, and it took a lot of first unit, a lot of second unit. I don't know how many days, but it was days and days to shoot. And a lot of the second unit was just piecemeal. It wasn't really, it was just little, little pieces here and there. And so what I did with that sequence is I, I got the first unit. I went through it I'm taking pieces and making a select reel of all the pieces that I think are best for the story. So then I will take my select reel and I'll have an assistant put it in scene order. So, you know, Kevin Sturmer or Christian Shreve will just put it in a scene order for me. And so then I have all the best pieces that I like in scene order. So then I, I read the script and I put it together as much as I can. And when there's something missing, I just type in Frank enters here, which is missing, or a Geary's character comes in and and scares these natives away. I'll just type the pieces in that I don't have. And then if I have it, I'll cut storyboards in. My first pass is always just a bunch of different title cards, storyboards, maybe some previs. We had a little bit of previs for some of the scenes. I don't think we had any for the Tree Village fight. And then I would just keep plugging in the best pieces, kind of like a puzzle, like these two pieces cut together. Okay, that goes there. Okay, there's nothing for the next piece. So I'm going to put a card or a storyboard. Oh, these three pieces will cut together. I'll put that there. And just I'll just keep building on it and building on it until it's it's a complete scene. And then once it's a complete scene, I'll put sound on it. And I'll put music on it. I'll have Jeanette put music or I'll do it myself. And then I just keep cutting it. Once the whole thing is completely assembled in a form, I go back and look at the dailies again. I look at everything one more time. And then what I do is I find pieces in the dailies that fit into my assembly. But sometimes when you find those pieces and you put them in, you have to recut sections because that great piece of Emily scared fits, but the other pieces around it don't fit anymore. So I have to kind of recut it. I'm always going back and looking and looking at it and trying things. And sometimes I'll finish a sequence and then we'll put music and sound effects on it. I'll show it to Jama. He'll say, okay, that's good for now. And then I'll be cutting dailies and I'll have a thought and I'll just go back to it and recut it again. It's just a matter of just toning it, at least to my liking. And hopefully my liking is, is an audience's liking. Some of the amazing VFX stuff, even some of the scenes with the, the riverboat, you might think, this is how long this shot deserves when you're looking at a green screen shot. But then when you see the final shot, you're like, I want to watch that for another 10 seconds. Talk to me about what happens when you see a final effect. It happens all the time. And what you do is when you order a shot or when you turn it over to the visual effects team, usually turn it over with handles and it's longer. The other thing that happens too is in order for the shots to get done, the visual effects companies need X amount of time. So we'll turn over an early version, which is a longer version normally. And once it starts getting better and better and you start seeing what it's supposed to be, you do extend it. 
and you do say, oh, that shot's really cool. I mean, in fact, there's some shots in the movie now, which I wish were longer, but because of time and money, we couldn't really make them as long as we needed them. But always, always you look at it once it's done and you say, you know what, I'm going to add a little bit more to this. And, and what I do is as we're cutting in final visual effects shots, I have Rebecca Wagle was our visual effects editor. I have her put it on the top layer on the Avid. So my my cut is on say track v1 v2 that's where my dailies are i have her put the new visual effect shots one layer higher so they're just the little shots on on the layer and then i can see every new shot that came in that day in the cut and so i look at it and i say oh you know what i want to use the handle on this side or this side and it's it's really handy to do that because every day i come in she's got the shot she cuts them in and i, I can just go right to the new shots and i can see you know, i don't necessarily cut them in i know some editors like to cut in all their visual effects shots but rebecca cuts them in and i have an easy way to get to it and then i just extend it you've worked with this director before talk to me about just the shorthand or what the value is that you to new each other and I'm assuming that's how you got the gig. Oh yeah, he called me and he talked to me about it. I, I think I cut his first movie that he directed and this was House of Wax, which was 20 years ago, something like that. He did commercial and music videos and I have that in my background too. So we kind of connected there and commercials and music videos are, are a, a certain type of editing style. You know, it's kind of fast paced. His images that he gets are just, for lack of a better word, they're candy colored and they're just, you know, beautiful images. And he's, he is a lot about, which a lot of commercial directors are about shots and he gets really amazing images. So we kind of connected there and amazing images with quicker cutting style or a faster paced cutting style. And, and we liked each other and we kept trying to work together after that. And it didn't happen again until Shallows. I kind of have the same sensibility as he does and he knows my sensibility and it's a good working relationship. And it's also a good personal relationship. And, and he's very open with me. He tells me all his ideas and all his issues on the film at the time and we talk through it while he's shooting i'll cut scenes together and assemble them and he'll come before and after the shoot and look at things and he'll have suggestions on things that he's missing or things that would help this help the sequence to play better or having issues with we would talk about it and then we'd be able to go to the set the next day knowing what he needs to pick up or knowing what he needs to kind of adjust and um, he trusts me he has me assemble scenes and if i tell him you know what that scene's great it doesn't need anything else it's working perfectly then he trusts me and he says okay cool i'll move on to the next thing or if i say oh you definitely have to get a reaction of of Dwayne. So he, he trusted me. He says, oh yeah, okay, I'll go get it. Some of those shots in the time constraints you have while you're shooting and in the cost money visual effects wise, and it's time and you know, they're not, they may look like an easy shot, but they're not really easy to get. And, and he trusts me enough to go back and, and get those shots that I think he might need. Can I ask one more question of the sound guys? Tell me a little bit about what we can do as picture editors to help you? The first thing that occurs to me is to reach out, you know, as early as possible, hopefully before shooting even starts, to start to get us involved and to be able to send a toolkit that can help. Or if there's previs scenes that have been done, to send those to us and let us get a sound design pass going that can help for presentation purposes. You know, a lot of times on some big films, we've been brought in early for green light presentations. And what we found is on those films where we've been brought in that early, it allows the sound to really help the picture stand up on its feet as early as possible. So I would say 
that's maybe one of the single biggest things that I think can help us, but more importantly, can help the movie get standing on its feet. I would add one of the things I love about working with you, Joel, is the discipline you have within your department where there isn't wasted time. You might have a long schedule, but you still always feel like you're catching up. You know, there's so much to do every single day. When you're not going through meaningless trimming frames here or there all through the final mix where you're not able to be creative on the mix stage, but you're just keeping things in sync, that never happens on a Joel show because there's just that discipline and confidence. So at that point, now we're focusing on the mix and the sound and we can be creative, not just handling technical sync you know conforms and, and that kind of thing so talk about that final mix and in your role in that mix what is the value of having the editor in the mix and then what is the curse of having the editor in the mix well for us i mean it's fantastic having joel in the final mix because really the whole process leading up to it has been such a tense collaboration that it feels like it needs to continue through the end as we all know, the whole process of doing this is such a collaborative effort that it needs to continue until it's absolutely finished. I mean, I like being on the dub stage. I mean, that's one of my favorite times of working on the movie. And I know where all the bodies are, are buried. I've heard all the conversations from the producers. I've, heard all, I've had millions of conversations with the director. I know the film really, really well. And I know what the intention is for every scene in the movie. You know, an intention with sound effects, with music, with the volume of music, the volume of what the sound effects should be. I, I know in most cases, the taste of the director. So I can say, hey, he's not going to like that. You know, he's not going to like that. So let's try something different. And Ethan and Eric will have a whole library of things to try on, on the dub stage. And I think it makes it go smoother to have the editor there. He's the person yeah. that's been around since the beginning of the shoot. So he kind of knows the film the, the best. Yeah, I mean, it's, in many cases, it feels like the picture editor being there is like, having a navigator on a ship. In this case, Joel has been there through the whole process in all these different meetings, had all these different experiences and has inside information that many of the rest of us won't have that as he's describing, he just has so much information that we're not necessarily privy to that's going to inform all the thousands of decisions that need to get made through that mix process. Jeanette, can you just talk about Metallica? Because that was something that was really cool. That <laughs> yeah, that was a day that I came in, saw Joel and Jama, and Jama almost in passing took his iPhone and said, "I want this in the movie." And so it was not score; it was it was Metallica. And I'm like, "Okay, where? I can't say the scene, but it'll be a surprise." It actually was in the, you guys have been working on it for a while, but it was an assembled cut. So still seven minutes long. And it was the song that we have to put into the middle of the movie. So to keep that cool song going, and I had probably seven hours to do it too, because time was of the essence. I just went in and took Jama's idea and put it against the scene and embellished it with uh, synths and anything else I could think of and just different instrumentation. She was finding different versions of Metallica on the internet and cutting it into the, into our movie. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And then embellishing it in different ways. I found a number of versions that I can make a collage of, put these pieces on top of each other. Then I would go in and just 
add a bed of strings just to make sure that it was seamless for seven minutes. <laughs> it's in the very beginning of the movie too. Now that that was a template. And then James and Howard worked with Metallica and you'll find the surprise there. Love it. Hey, I want to be respectful. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me. Thanks so much. Good to see you. All right. Bye. Bye, Bye Jamal. Okay. Bye, Joel. Bye, guys. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are also available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. Also, it's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven curated experience. Thanks to my guests, Joel Negron, ACE, Jeanette Serga, Ethan Vanderrein, and Eric Adal. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. Have you ever reviewed a podcast? I'd love to see your review of this podcast. And remember that if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io.